and welcome to the Tap Into Podcast, recorded in front of a live audience here at the Wanstead Tap, an award-winning bar and venue in an old railway arch at the dark end of an East End street. So if you hear a rumble in the background, it's just a train passing overhead. In January 2022, on a cold, wet evening, in conjunction with the Newham Bookshop, we played host to journalist Nick Wallace, who had recently published his first book, The Great Post Office Scandal. Fast forward two years. Who on earth could have predicted what happened next? I'm not quite sure how to do this. I think, all right, I'll tell you a bit about myself. Um, I um, became a journalist 22 years ago. I was trained up by the BBC. Um, I was working in local radio doing uh, sports stuff. I always wanted to, to be around radio since university. I did student radio. And um, I started doing um, BBC local radio sports. And then the, lo- the editor said, oh, uh, you know, why don't you become a journalist? And I didn't really have any interest in being a journalist. I do have a, a natural loathing of authority, which I think he'd identified in me because I refused to do anything that he told me. Um, and he, he just clearly thought that I'd be a natural journalist. So he, he, he sent me off on one of these BBC brainwashing courses where you come back uh, 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 spouting BBC um, values and, and, and all sorts of things. But basically, they trained me up um, to do journalism. And I... Um, went to London I started working for BBC Three uh, on their nascent now defunct news service and then went to Radio One Newsbeat where I became an entertainment journalist and uh, then I went freelance started doing loads of stuff for ITN and uh, Channel 5 News and uh, then the financial crash hit which was not a great time to be a freelancer and uh, I went along to BBC Surrey and I said um have you got any jobs going? They said, well, it just so happens we're looking for a breakfast show presenter. Do you want the job? So I said, okay, great. Any port in a storm. And um, it was there that I picked up the, uh, well, it was there that I picked up the interest in sort of journalism as a purpose because in local radio, which is largely listened to by, by older people and often you're sometimes, you know, the, the, the only friend that they've got. And that was a, uh, a, a sort of some, you know, someone who'd been working in the centre of London and Radio 1 to suddenly sort of realise that sometimes you're the only voice that someone's going to hear all day is quite an unusual sort of position of responsibility to be in. And often they would have problems and they would call in they say, oh, I've got a problem with my bins and the council aren't doing anything about my bins and it's been going on for six weeks and you sort of listen to the, the problem and you think, well, there isn't really a problem here, it just needs someone to do something about it. And so you call up the council the next day and say, we're going to do Mrs Miggins in a problem with the bins. And Mrs Miggins' bin problem would be fixed in 30 minutes. And then the council leader would come on air and go, oh, yes, this is my best people working on it. We've got the bins sorted out. Um, Sorry, Mrs Miggins, off we go. And I thought, well... Why couldn't if you? Why did I have to get involved? You know, it's really odd that. that but, it, but it was that value of being able to shine a spotlight on a story, which I suppose brought home to me the the, the purpose of journalism, and uh, I therefore took much more of an interest in my craft after that, and and um, went on to do investigative journalism for Inside Out South, which is the first organisation that broadcast uh, what I was doing with the post office story, and then. Um, yeah, the economy had picked up, so I went freelance again, got a gig on the one show, did loads of Crash Bang Wallet programmes for Channel 5, which was great fun. But, I mean, they were, you know, they still show them in the middle of the night on Channel 5. They paid really well, and they weren't very hard work. So what it allowed me to do was subsidise the work that I was doing for nothing on the post office story. Um, and then, yeah, and then eventually enough people sort of started to realise there was something serious enough going on to commission me to do work on it. So I did a panorama in 2015, and then... 
then it all went quiet. And then Alan Bates, who's the head of the Justice for Postmasters Alliance, who I, I, I he, he's a character who sort of runs in a thread throughout this book. He's a very mercurial, stubborn guy. Um, I have I butted heads with him so many times, but he is a hero, an absolute hero for what he's achieved. He got the funding to take the post office to court, and I realised that I was basically not going to be able to um, get anyone to pay for me to sit in court and hoover up everything that was going to come uh, out of the court case. And one of the crucial things, which I, I, I explain in a chapter in the book, which I'm now not going to read because I'm telling you, um, if you're not in court, um, you don't get document, you don't say... So, if you are in court and a document is referred to, then you are allowed to apply to the court or the parties to see that document because it has been mentioned in open court. Therefore, it achieves this kind of quasi-temporary public status. And so you've got to grab that document before it disappears under the waters of confidentiality, never to be seen again. And I knew that so much stuff was going to come out about the post office in open court that I had to be there for every single day. And no editor was going to pay me to do that. You don't even get agency court reporters staying for every single day of a, a high court trial nowadays because there's just, you know, the, the, the money's gone out of journalism. So I crowdfunded. I, I, I basically put a Kickstarter campaign together hoping that uh, if I could make a sort of modest loss on the first trial, then it would justify me being there. And within nine days, I'd raised double my minimum target, which gave me enough money to think about covering the second trial, which I eventually did. But it was through that that all these incredible documents came to light. And although I crowdfunded my presence at the trial, I wanted the journalism to be free at the point of uh, consumption. So I just put it all up on a blog. I managed to get the transcripts out of the parties and I just put them straight up on the blog and I got all these documents and put them all up on the blog. And it was through that and through getting other information and the contacts that I built that I was able to, um, well, I was able to, when the Postmasters won, hang a panorama on it from the other documents that, of course, although they appeared in court, no one else knew about them um, in 2020 and the Radio 4 series, which many people who I've spoken to already this evening have heard and uh, have said nice things about, um, and the Private Eye special, Justice Lost in the Post, which I, I co-wrote with Richard Brooks, who has been my contact at that magazine since I first took it to them back in 2011. So... Um, that is sort of me and my relationship with this story. So it was only on the 15th of March 2019 that anyone in authority sided with the sub-postmasters. They'd been campaigning pretty much since 2004, was, was Alan Bates when he formed Post Office Victims uh, uh, website. Um, and so that 15th of March 2019 was the first time anyone in authority good that it happened to be a high court judge sided with the postmaster and said what they are saying is right so when you're trying to get this story away before anyone else is endorsing what the postmasters are saying including the national federation of sub postmasters which we may get into later um you try and explain to a news editor what the story is and they go right okay what's a sub postmaster they go well well, they're like employees, but they're not really employees of the post office, but they, they are the people who manage post offices, but they sort of own them because they're self... OK, fine. OK, right, right. So what have, what have they done? Well, they say that they've been sent, uh, given criminal convictions because of, uh, because of this, this computer system and it wasn't their fault. And, and, and why are they all pleaded guilty then? Ah, right. Well, that was because the justice system has sort of reigned up again. And, and, you know, you've got a broadcast news editor whose mind is going, Brexit, COVID, sorry, mate, we're busy. And... So trying to get this the story even over the line in the early days was, was a real struggle. And so it is quite a long book, I'll grant you that, but I wanted to tell the full story. And at the time I was reading Barack Obama's autobiography and Hilary Mantel's The Shadow and the Light, which are both 
more than 750 pages long. So this is something of a tiddler by comparison. <laughs>
They asked whether I wanted legal representation, and I told them, no, I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't need anybody. Happy to be interviewed. Not a problem. The two strapping guys were from the post office's internal security unit. Tracy's interview turned into an interrogation. They were constantly asking, what did you spend the money on? And I remember looking at them and saying, seriously, I haven't taken any money. You can have access to anything you want, bank accounts, whatever. I haven't taken any money. Tracy was suspended. They said they needed to do some more investigation. I was distraught, absolutely distraught. But part of me actually thought, well, they'll get me sorted because I haven't stolen any money, so they'll fix this. Three weeks later, at 8am, the same post office investigators knocked on the door of John's parents' home in Peckham, where Tracy was staying. The investigators were accompanied by two police officers. The police told me they were there to keep the peace. What they thought I was going to do, I'm not quite sure. I'm only five foot three and small, you know, a size 10. And these men are massive, intimidating, huge men. And they said, could you escort us down the police station for interviewing? And I said, yeah, fine. On this occasion, Tracy did ask for a solicitor. To understand how the Horizon scandal could happen, it's worth trying to understand what the post office actually is. If you spend any time in the UK, you're likely to have some sort of concept of the post office. Depending on where you live and possibly how old you are, that concept will vary. The image of a middle-aged husband and wife team running a village branch as their last job before retirement still just about holds true, but the network has changed significantly over the last 20 years. There are now hundreds of busy suburban outlets in the hands of limited companies or entrepreneurial sub-postmasters with multiple branches seeking profit in economies of scale. In recent years, the post office has also retreated from many of its imposing city centre crown office buildings and chosen instead to inhabit the basements and back ends of newsagents and stationery chains. Unfortunately, a down-at-heel shabbiness characterises many post offices. Yet the post office still holds, and undoubtedly trades off, a unique position in the British psyche. But the post office's eternal presence has been preserved by something with an altogether more sinister edge. As well as being part of the fabric of the nation, the efficient and secure operation of the post office is protected by its proximity to power. Interrupting or defrauding post office business comes with severe penalties. For most of the last three centuries, the post office has maintained a specialised investigative unit. This unit has direct access to the criminal justice system through the post office's in-house prosecutors. In fact, the post office's investigation branch, which was known by the start of the 20th century as IB, is the oldest recognised criminal investigation force in the world. It predates the police. In the 18th and 19th centuries, postal workers caught stealing from the mail could expect to be hanged. The Post Office Museum website proudly states that the investigation branch has worked to detect offences against the post and prosecute the perpetrators. These could be highwaymen, robbers, clerks or delivery boys or even spies. Right up until the mid-90s, the post office was essentially working in exactly the same way as it was in Queen Victoria's Day, pen and paper accounts. There had been efforts from, I think, the mid-80s to try and automate certain functions within the post office. Uh, to the, but they were so inept that I think one very, very bright sub-postmaster invented his own system and started selling it to other post, post offices, which the post office hated and tried to, to clamp down on. Um, but Horizon was conceived as being the Big Bang. It, it, it was a misbegotten idea, which was um, which was born out of the benefits agency's determination to clamp down on rampant benefit fraud through the voucher books that they used to have in the pensions books. They decided they wanted to switch to swipe cards, so which was a established proven technology from you know the, the late seventies, the American Express and Access 
magnetic stripes that you've still got on cards today. Um, and which was all very well. Yes, okay, let's 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 have a swipe card. So once it's swiped somewhere back at uh, the mainframe computer, we'll recognise that this card has been swiped and no more benefits can be swiped off it until the following week when they qualify for benefits again. Uh, the problem was they didn't have anywhere to swipe it. So the second client for this automation would be the post office, which would provide the swipe card holders for people to swipe their cards and receive their benefits. Uh, it was conceived as a billion-pound PFI deal, which was... Uh, eventually won by ICL, which was owned 80% by Fujitsu and eventually swallowed whole by Fujitsu. Um, and it was, I think it was pretty much a disaster from start to finish. Fujitsu won the bid on the basis that although they came bottom in the uh, beauty parade that they had for the various contractors in eight out of 11 categories, they were the cheapest. So they got the gig. And the basic model was that from the moment the deal was signed, Fujitsu had eight years of attracting revenue. So it had an incentive to build this computer system as quickly as possible so it could start getting these cards swiped and it would get a swipe for, it would get a pound or something for every card that was swiped through the, the, the holder. So that was the business case. The government loved it because Fujitsu was swallowing all the infrastructure costs and all the setup costs, all the training costs. And then the benefits agency changed their minds and decided that they were going to try and uh, push people to have their benefits received through bank accounts. And they didn't want a swipe card anymore. So the entire business case for Horizon fell apart in one day. And also the post office was suddenly in danger of losing 30% of its footfall. So they were up in arms. And the the project was very nearly orphaned and serious consideration was given to binning it, especially as they couldn't get it to work in prototypes. Um, Benefits agency walked away. The deal was completely restructured whereby um, Fujitsu would essentially just get a set fee for building this system. Uh, And the post office became the sole client. It meant that there was a huge amount of government pressure on the post office to make this work. And they essentially bet the farm on on Horizon. They had a view that there was money leaking out of the system. There's no doubt about it. In the 90s, there was money leaking out of the system, whether it was benefit fraud, whether it was fraud by cashiers, whether it was fraud by sub-postmasters, whether it was theft at the cash centres that the post office ran. But there was money leaking out of the system. And they had no tabs on where this money was going. Because when they gave... £20,000 a week to a post office, they would then said goodbye to that money. And it was entirely in the hands of the sub-postmaster, who once a week would fill out uh, an enormous spreadsheet on a piece of paper with all the columns for all the things that they'd sold, benefits, tactics, you know, money out, money in, fold it up, put it in an envelope and send it to the post office headquarters in Chesterfield. That's what they were running on until 1999. So Horizon was the big bang. Horizon was going to automate everything. It was going to be an electronic point of sale system, so a till, but it was going to be connected to the accounting system and it would render the accounts of the sub-postmasters to the post office. The sub-postmaster contract was such that because sub-postmasters were agents of the post office and because rendering your accounts is a very specific thing in law and the penalties for rendering false accounts are very very serious Uh, postmasters had to be very very careful about what they were sending off to chesterfield and be and be personally accountable for the money that washed through their branch the sub postmaster contract held sub postmasters liable for all losses in their branch howsoever they are caused other than by carelessness negligence or error but if the post office decided that you had caused this by your carelessness, negligence or error or that of your assistance, they essentially had you over a barrel because they could also take away your post office with three months notice without giving you a reason. 
So if you had a hole in your accounts, the post office would swing by and go, well, you're going to have to do something about this, you know, what's been going on here? And uh, the, the postmaster, more often than not, would have to, to cough up. But that's okay, because they were in control of the money that was coming into their shop and out of their shop, and they were also in control of their accounts. When automation came in, the postmaster ceded control of their accounts, but maintained legal responsibility for them. So they were now in charge of accounts that they, they had no control over. And Alan Bates, who set up the Justice for Sub-Postmasters Alliance, spent his previous career uh, working with uh, Heritage Wales on renovating old castles and making them, you know, sticking a, a visitor's shop in them and, and, and automating them so that they had an idea of their proper numbers and how much people were buying and stuff. He designed or helped design specific EPOS systems for various buildings with the companies who were building them from scratch for him. So he knew his way around these things. And when he started getting discrepancies in his branch in North Wales, he said to the post office, I said, look, I, I can't interrogate my accounts properly. I don't have the tools as a front-end user that I need to find out what is going on at the back end to see where my transactions are. And, and I am pretty sure, being a meticulous sort, that I'm not making any mistakes. I'm pretty sure that my assistants aren't making mistakes. I think it's either happening at the back end or there's a problem with your computer system. Just give me the tools to interrogate it properly and we'll work out where this money has gone. Post office said no over a period of 18 months and then sacked him with three months' notice. And that was it. He lost £100,000 investment in his business because everyone, every postmaster in those days bought their own business and they paid money to the post office for that and then they often refurbished the business. And his footfall and his role as a postmaster was taken away from him almost overnight. And, and he pretty much from that moment on said, right, I'm one day going to get my own back. It took him 16 years, but he did. So not only was this a very, very odd system to be rolling out under a very, very odd contract, which made no allowances for this new IT system, but it fundamentally did not work. I have spoken to a development manager who worked, who was brought in to rescue the Horizon system because Fujitsu simply could not get it to work. And he said, I went through it for two weeks trying to understand what they'd built, why they'd built it, how they'd built it, and what they were trying to get it to do. And at the end of two weeks, I, I said to them, right, you could, you, we can repair this, we can repair that, but this function has to go, this function has to be rebuilt from scratch. And he was overruled. And I said to him, so what was it? He said, well, what they did was they built a proof of concept prototype, and then what they should have done was throw that away and then start from scratch. But they just kept building code on top of code that was bad code and never properly tested. They had no design plans. You can read his quotes if you're a at all technically minded because I just um, took them in verbatim. I got them checked out by someone else who knew what they were talking about. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, you know, he's not making this up. He is the real deal. I checked out his identity. He remains anonymous in the book, but he is the real deal because I, because I well, A, know who he is, know what jobs he's worked on in the past and also had what he was saying checked out by someone who knew exactly how these systems work. And he said, yeah, I cannot see a single thing wrong with what he's saying. That all makes sense in retrospect. Um, but I kept a lot of the tech talk in because it just explains just how bad it was. He said that they didn't have any proper coding dictionaries. And he said the fundamental problem was that the cash writing program, which totted up, which this is, described this all in terms of data trees and how it all works. And I was nodding, listening, and just hoping the recorder was going as he was telling me all this. Um, it, it basically, it didn't work. It couldn't get its sums to add up. And when the Horizon system was rolled out to the 20,000 post offices that then existed in the country at that time, that is more than every single retail bank and supermarket at the time put together, it was described as the largest non-military IT system in Europe. And as any IT person will tell you, and they have a lot of them have told me this over the years, with scale, you scale up the problems. 
And so although Horizon worked 99.9% .9 of the time perfectly, the 0.1% was a big enough number for it to affect a large number of people. And the way that the whole system was set up was such that the consequences of things going wrong with Horizon were catastrophic. People were threatened that if they didn't pay back the holes in their accounts that had been created by this system. And I remember um, speaking to one investigator who had spoken to a number of sub-postmasters who were there before Horizon. The biggest discrepancy they'd ever had was like 700 quid. Most were around 50, 70, sometimes you get 300 or something. With Horizon's capacity to sort of multiply numbers or add extraneous zeros to things, people were finding themselves 10, 20,000 pounds out of whack. And the post office, which had essentially bet the farm on this automation project, promised the government everything was going to be all right, were listening to Fujitsu, were telling them they were getting a gold-plated service, didn't for one moment think the computer would be wrong after all. You know, computers are never wrong. You always put two and two into a calculator and four comes out. So why would this, this accounting system be wrong? It must be the fault of the sub-postmasters. And so these accounting holes would appear. Sub-postmasters were threatened with losing their business if they didn't make them good. And they were funneling their retail takings and their life savings into this black hole in their accounts. And if the numbers got big enough, the post office would just shut them down, suspend them, sack them, and then take them to court. And the second shocking thing about that is that the post office, with its own criminal prosecution department and investigation department, and righteous belief that they were older and therefore better than anyone else who came after them, all their prosecutions went under the radar of both the police and the CPS. They weren't checked or counted by any court or any system or any government agency or the post office themselves until they were forced to last year. So no one knew about this prosecution spree that the post office was going on until about two years ago, until I got it out of them, um, when, I, when I spotted one line in one of their press releases that, that suggested that there was more than the small number of um, uh, criminally prosecuted postmasters who'd been through the high court system. So, so they were prosecuting people on an industrial scale. And... Many of these people were told that if they didn't pay the money back, they would lose their business. Initially, they had the money taken out of their sub-postmaster's salary, but they could only do that once in a 12-month period. So then they were handing out money over their savings. And then it got to the point where they'd essentially run out of money. And the sensible thing to do, and it's a question that I asked very early on, was well, why didn't you just shut up shop and just say, look, you've got to come in and sort this out. I'm not having anything more to do with this. If they did that, the postmasters could be sacked for breach of contract because they weren't providing the service to the public that they were contractually liable for. So they kept their business open, and a lot of it was also out of community-mindedness. You know, if Mrs. Miggins couldn't get her pension, then what was Mrs. Miggins going to do for the week? So they felt obligated towards their customers and frightened that they were going to be out of contract if they, they shut up shop and refused to work. So what they started to do was they started to basically go, yeah, those numbers are right on their Horizon terminal. And as soon as the post office got wind of this, then they'd have them through the courts for false accounting and often theft. And then all sorts of horrible plea bargaining went on that, that basically found some postmasters, honest sub postmasters, who had basically tried to keep their business open by basically pressing buttons on this computer screen that they didn't understand, being told that if they did not plead guilty to false accounting, which was a, a straight-up charge which the post office could prove because they'd essentially admitted it in their interviews with their investigators, then they would end up in prison. So you, this is why you found them pleading guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. And, 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 and yeah, so it just... It, 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 
it has happened before, and there are many other scandals like it, but it's such a multifaceted, odd situation that created this environment for this scandal to happen. You'd like to think it might not be able to happen again. but So you had to be properly security vetted. You had to have lived your life almost blamelessly. You know, obviously not, not a sniff of a criminal record. So why wasn't it, when they were prosecuting postmasters at the rate of one a week for 13 years, that no one at the business said, even if all those people are guilty, what is it about our business that is turning people to crime? But it is clearly a policy within the investigation department of the post office over that period of time to tell people who were having discrepancies in their accounts that they were the only ones that were having inexplicable discrepancies. Now, nowadays, they wouldn't be able to get away with that because a lot of sub-postmasters are very active on WhatsApp and Facebook forums. But if you take yourself back to 2001, 2002, only the most internet savvy were on the message boards. You didn't have social media. And... The geographical isolation, the nature of the job, means that these people are the only people doing that job, the only people responsible for that computer and accounting system within their communities. And being a sub-postmaster, I have learned, is really hard work. You're up at five o'clock every morning preparing the shop, and you work really, really late. So the idea that you would sort of leave the shop to go and travel down to another postmaster who might be having problems with their... You know, it, it just in those days, the idea was, was just didn't even enter people's minds. So when they have contact with the post office, they tell them they've got these problems and the investigators turn up or the auditors turn up and they, and they say, well, look, isn't anyone else having trouble with this system? I mean, I can't get it to do this. They go, no, you're the only one. And they repeated that lie. There's so much testimony from some postmasters who say, we were told that, so many people have been told that, that, well, I, you know, there's obviously no, no doubt they're not lying, but it was clear to me that it's obviously policy within the investigation department to do that purely to isolate these people. And if you are a competent person and you're used to working with numbers all your life and you've bought a business because you're a successful person and you're running a post office and day after day after day you can't get your accounts to add up and you're being told that you're the only person having problems, it causes massive psychological and mental health problems for people because you start to doubt, doubt reality and you're under a lot of pressure, you're under a lot of stress, you're losing money out of your pocket. So these people entered this bizarre Kafkaesque nightmare where their money was disappearing out of their pockets, their careers were going down the tubes, they were being told they were the only ones that happened to it and they had this threat of losing their jobs and possible criminal prosecution if things went on unchecked, hanging over them and then the nightmare became real. The post office actually would take money off people to balance the accounts and then go and prosecute them anyway. It was... It was essentially an arm of the state gone rogue. Right, I'll, I'll make an admission to you because um, I, I was once at BAFTA watching Oliver, clang, watching Oliver Stone clang uh, do a talk sitting next to um, Safraz Mahmood, who was um, the guy who uh, eventually ended up having a film made about his life story, Blinded by the Light. And Oliver Stone uh, was, was talking about his own work and then he sort of cracked up a little bit and sort of started crying and, and said, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm a bit tired. And Safra sort of looked at me and went, this is excruciating. One thing I've discovered from reading about some of the awful stories in this, because I'm used to doing broadcast media where you're staring at a camera and a microphone, and I've been doing this for years, and I never have any problem telling these horrendous stories. I've just started doing this in front of a live audience, and for some reason I don't know what it is. It's, whether it's the connection or the response or a human sort of reaction to it, I tend to, when I'm reading some really quite emotional bits, I tend to sort of go lose it a little bit, like, like I'm getting terribly over-emotional at my own genius. Um, <laughs> 
But I'm going to read you something quite emotional for me because I've got to know these people. Uh, when Tracy Felstead was sent to prison, she wasn't that much older than my daughter. And I'm, he's going, Mildred, he's going. And, uh, and it really does have a, a really quite visceral effect on me. So I apologise in advance if I get a little bit wound up about uh, Tracy. I'm not going to, don't worry, burst into tears. But, yeah, if my voice goes a little bit like that... <laughs> quite sad but you know not until I wrote this book and then started trying to read it out to people in public have I I gone like this so I feel desperately embarrassed on your behalf if it happens um here we go so the post office investigators seemed fascinated by Tracy Felstead's family holiday they said did you pay for everybody to go she remembers Tracy's mum and dad got involved we said right you can have access to everyone's bank accounts so you can see exactly how people have paid for the holiday and where the money's come from the investigators were not satisfied Three weeks later, at the end of April 2001, Tracy was sacked. She was charged by the post office's criminal prosecutors with theft and false accounting because her signature was on the paperwork. Tracy's solicitor was unamused. The post office investigators had no evidence of theft. The prosecutions didn't make sense. Although Tracy was devastated, she remembers thinking things would work out. The post office would realise its mistake and drop the charges, or if the worst happened, the justice system would allow her to prove her innocence. Word of the prosecution leaked into the local community. Tracy found herself the victim of a whispering campaign. Family friends, like the guy who got me the job, his family refused to talk to me. They just totally ignored me. And I had people looking at me as if I was a thief. You know, she's done this. Tracy's self-belief began to crumble alarmingly quickly. The only way to explain it is that you're in a black hole. You feel trapped, suffocated. I couldn't understand how anyone could think I would steal anything. My mental health, my whole life took a hit. I was a bubbly girl. I would go out. I had a decent life. I enjoyed life. And then all of a sudden, I didn't want to go out. Things escalated. Because I had time on my hands and because I wasn't working, because I'd been dismissed, I got stuck in a rut. The more I was indoors and the more my mind wasn't occupied, the more frantic I became. Tracy went to see her GP, who prescribed her Prozac antidepressants. They didn't work. Over the summer of 2001, Tracy tried to kill herself. I didn't want to have to answer questions. I couldn't answer. I didn't want people to see me. I didn't want to go to court. The stigma was very strong. I didn't want to feel like that. I wanted me back. I wanted to be me again. And I didn't feel I was me. I just wanted to die. Tracy took an overdose in her room. She was found by a friend while she was still conscious and rushed to hospital, where she had her stomach pumped. A few weeks later, Tracy took another overdose. I thought, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't cope. I just didn't want to be alive. I didn't want to feel the pain. Alone in the house, Tracy slipped out of consciousness. By luck, her fiancé, John, came home early from work and found her. She was rescued by the emergency services again. This time, she was not sent home, but committed to a secure psychiatric unit at the Princess Royal Hospital in Bromley. Tracy was given intensive psychotherapy treatment and responded well, but once she was out, she had to deal with the reality of being prosecuted. Tracy was not a well woman, but the post office clearly felt it was important to nail her. First, there was a hearing at Guildford Magistrates Court where Tracy pleaded not guilty to both theft and false accounting. Then came a three-day trial in front of a jury at Kingston Crown Court. Tracy was a wreck. She remembers shivering in the dock as she watched the trial happen around her. She can't recall much about what was said, but she remembers a point that came up during cross-examination. Basically, they were saying, you did take the money, your signature is there, it's your till, you've taken the money. I said, I went to the manager and explained and I was told it would be okay but it didn't seem like they wanted to listen. I couldn't answer the prosecution's questions because I didn't know what had happened. Tracy was convicted by a majority verdict. I was just in disbelief. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. 
Tracy wasn't sentenced immediately. Because of her fragile mental state and previous suicide attempts, the judge wanted psychiatric reports completed. Without Tracy's knowledge, her family were also told if they paid the post office the missing £11,000, a prison sentence was less likely. Between Tracy's family and John's parents, they raised the total and handed it over. When John's mum told Tracy, she hit the roof. I was, why are you paying them something I haven't taken? They were trying to save me, but I was so strong-willed, I thought people would see it as a sign of guilt. On her sentencing date, Tracy was told by the judge that she was a liar, that she'd stolen money from pensioners, and that she'd disgraced her family. Tracy was invited to apologise. She refused. I said in court, I'm not saying something for, sorry for something I haven't done. I'm not saying sorry because I haven't done anything wrong. The judge decided this lack of remorse required a custodial sentence and sent her to prison for six months. Tracy's father had to watch his daughter being led from the dock to the cells in handcuffs. I was absolutely petrified, she remembers. Petrified. My barrister came and saw me. He said, something's not right. I don't know how to prove it. We didn't know how to prove it. We almost didn't know how to defend ourselves in a way because we've got these big guys. They're saying, well, you've signed that piece of paper and use that till and it's a discrepancy and you're the only one that uses that till and blah, 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 blah. As much as you can say, well, actually, no, I wasn't. Other people use that till as well. They just didn't want to listen. On the 20th of June 2002, Tracy was taken in an armoured van to HMP Holloway. She was put on suicide watch. I was in a high security prison at the age of 19. I walked in and you go through all the protocol. You've got to strip. You've got to be searched. As with all new inmates, Tracy was brought before the prison governor. I sat down and I was obviously very, very distraught because they had to give me medication to calm me down. And he said to me, what are you doing here? A girl like you shouldn't be here. Tracy was assigned to a cell, but she was not allowed to be left on her own. She became even more desperate listening to the tales of prisoners who'd murdered people. And with people that, it's their home if that makes sense. You listen to their stories and you think, oh my goodness, this is all they've got. They actually go out and re-offend because that's all they had. One afternoon, Tracy walked into a cell to find the body of a girl who'd hanged herself. She began to have nightmares. There were fights, people screaming that they're going to kill someone. Tracy spent three months in Holloway. On the day of her release, John and her parents were waiting outside. I got in the car and I remember I was shaking. John put my engagement ring back and I put it on my finger. I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight and all I wanted to do, I just, I just needed to get home. When I got in, I was very conscious about the door going. I said, don't close the door. And still to this day, I can't have doors closed in my house because it takes me back to the sound of the prison door slamming. Tracy spent the next 20 years battling the mental health repercussions of her experience. In 2020, the post office admitted her prosecution was an abusive process. And the following year, the Court of Appeal ruled it was more than that. It was an affront to the entire justice system and should never have happened. Because when you hear there are 736 postmasters who went through similar experiences to this, they just become a number. We, we should be 700 times as outraged by each individual story as we are about this first story. But we can't because we can't process information like that. And I think that is one of the things that... Um, well, it's a challenge when you're writing a book because you want to tell as many stories as possible, but you don't want to bore the listener and you don't want them to, to be fatigued by the, the sort of relentless diet of misery. Um, but it, it, is, it is also because the post office and government have done a very, very good job on keeping a lid on these personal stories. And, and so many people won't come forward. I, I spoke to one chap who's a forensic psychiatrist, a job that I didn't know actually existed, who's, who had had the task of assessing sub-postmasters for their compensation claims. And he said, I interviewed five of them and uh, four of them 
had completely undiagnosed PTSD. They, it, was, it was obvious to me from within 10 minutes of talking to them. He said the other one had diagnosed PSD, uh, PTSD. Shame can destroy families and reputations to the extent that if your relative in... And a couple of Indian sub-postmasters have said this to me. They said, we Indians, we love to brag. We love to talk about our successes and we love to talk about how well we're doing. So when they become, part, when they become effectively endorsed by the British state, when they take own a post office, they tell all their friends back in India just how well they're doing. Look at us, look at us. We're part of the British establishment now. We run a post office. So they're full from grace. And what happened to them and their families as a result back in India of the shame that they had brought on them by being criminally prosecuted for theft and false accounting had repercussions that went on for generations in, in, in some parts of the world. And postmasters are trusting individuals. They are proud. They're proud people and they're proud to serve their communities and they're proud of being a sub-postmaster as well. And they may have let that show a little bit. You know, They may have liked to be the centre of attention, the centre of the community. So again, when suddenly their post office closes and they're not sub-postmaster anymore and the whispering campaign start, the, the attack on their mental health, and, and uh, there's a lovely lady called Wendy Buffery who describes just lying in a darkened room for six, six months, I think she said, staring at the ceiling. She said she had, a, she had a job. She'd go and do a job like an automaton because she needed the money, but then she'd just come home, just lie, you know, not washing, not going out, not speaking to anyone, just staring at the, the ceiling in the darkened room for months on end. And many of these people are still on medication to this day. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah, the Reverend Paul Avenels, who became the post office chief executive in 2012 and left in 2019 with a CBE, a job in the cabinet office and the chairmanship of a large NHS trust, because her one job was to make the post office profitable, and she did that for one year. Um, she refused over seven years of requests to give me a single interview. Now, she's a public servant. It is part of the job description of a public servant to be accountable to the public, which usually happens through journalists asking them questions. Now, it's all very well for her to appear before common select committees where you've got MPs who are sort of semi-briefed on, on what they want to say and have their own agendas. But to not once for any single post office executive in the 10, 12 years that I've been covering this story to agree to do an interview is outrageous. And the current chief executive won't answer questions now. Because they'd be required to defend the indefensible. So the only accountability that exists is the few times when uh, post office executives have been forced to afford, appear before Parliament in select committee inquiries, where they're highly briefed and highly scripted and possibly not asked um, the most piercing questions. Or the forthcoming statutory inquiry, which starts proper this year, where they can be compelled under oath um, and be cross-examined by a QC, who will hopefully be on top of his or her brief to, to ask the right questions. I know a very, very bright legal mind who believes that the post office's decision to, we haven't even gone into it, but the cover-up that happened when Second Sight, the investigators, went into the Horizon system and found that there were serious problems, not just with Horizon and Fujitsu, but the entire post office business model, the way it went about business, its business, um, enforcement policies, asset recovery, uh, um, training of its sub-postmasters and contract enforcement. When Second Sight started levering the whole can of worms open, the post office went into complete cover-up mode. Um, they, they, they did their own private secret investigations, legal ones which uncovered uh, false prosecutions which they didn't tell anyone about other than the individuals involved and only on a very limited basis. They also... Uh, 
got BAE Systems subsidiary called Deskinet Reveal to look at their IT. Deskinet Reveal said, your IT systems are bunk. They don't work. They're not fit for purpose. But they kept that secret as well. And they kept that secret from the independent investigators who were working alongside them at the same time. And they kept that secret from MPs and journalists and public and the campaigners. Now, there is a prima facie case for um, uh, someone being held responsible for potentially perverting the course of justice because the effect of that cover-up, and I'm happy to call it a cover-up in, in public. I don't know enough about law to know whether there is a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. But the effect of that cover-up was that hundreds of sub-postmasters were denied access to justice, which is a fundamental human right under the Human Rights Act, um, by the deliberate actions of post office executives. If a strategy, a corporate strategy, does harm and is designed, and this is where you start dancing on the legal head of a pin and you have to sort of make the case in a very scholarly way, which I'm not capable of doing. If that, if that strategy has the effect of doing harm and the and the people responsible know that it was doing harm, then it becomes a conspiracy. Through really heroic efforts of people like Alan Bates, who took 555 sub-postmasters to the High Court, against all odds with an incredible legal team, they won a settlement and won a victory, which then led to the quashing of the convictions at the Court of Appeal. Um, we're now in a situation where those people who've had their convictions quashed are in a position to sue the post office for malicious prosecution. Post office officers are running a mile from this and, and, and suggesting that now they start negotiating for the money. But these people have suffered enormously. I mean, Tracy has spent most of her adult life a convicted criminal. Uh, you've heard about her mental health problems. Multiply that by 700. You've had lives and prospects devastated. You've had People who were going on to become very, very successful business people, losing those businesses, never being able to work again, going on antidepressants, incredible health problems brought on by stress, not just mental health. Their claims are rightfully in, in the millions. And there was a, a supposed announcement of this compensation that was being made to um, the pub postmasters who'd had their convictions quashed in December last year. And no one asked the minister how much he'd set aside for this compensation. In a way, that, that isn't their responsibility. He should have announced how much the government has set aside. £685 million pounds has been set aside by the government just for the people who've had their uh, convictions quashed, not including the thousands of people going through the historical shortfall scheme who never were prosecuted by the post office but were just forced to pay back money with menaces at threat of losing their business. They set aside £233 million for that. And they also set aside 94 million, which is where you get, end up with a billion figure, um, as interim compensation for those who get their um, uh, convictions quashed before they get their full compensation. I know that one person is claiming eight figures in compensation. I know several who are claiming seven. And they deserve it. They've, they've had their lives completely wrecked and ruined by the state. But it is the taxpayer that is going to pick up the bill because... When the post office, who are so inept that they had no idea how much the historical shortfall scheme was going to cost them, they budgeted 30 million quid. So this is, this is people who used to be sub-postmasters, who may still be sub-postmasters, who haven't been prosecuted but who may have been sacked or just left the business, who were forced to pay back money into this hole in their accounts. They looked at it after the High Court case, after reading all the stories, doing all the research, and they apportioned 30 million quid for this. Before the scheme had been fully totted up, they had £311 million worth of claims. And, and that just gives us a, a, a sort of understanding of how inept they were, how, how, how the board failed to understand the scale of the problem they had created, even in 2020. So 
yeah, this this will just rumble on as people get old and start to die and eventually get a check which they might be able to pass on to their children and you'll have all the people standing up in uh, the statutory inquiry saying, well, we acted on legal advice, we acted in good faith, there's nothing in my mind that we could have done that was any different because we took the advice and this was the advice we got and obviously we had to protect the brand and the business and public money um, and, and no one will go to prison. And I, I suspect a few people will be mildly censured in the final statutory inquiry report because that's the way this country works. Because there were times when I couldn't get arrested with it. I mean, even getting, the, even getting this book published, I started writing it. Uh, sorry, yeah, that is an unfortunate phrase. Um, a metaphor. I, I did the panorama for a broadcast journalist. Producing a panorama is the, the high point of, 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 well, it was of my career anyway. I thought, well, I've, I've, done, I've taken this story as far as it can go within my wheelhouse. So I'll write a book about it. Um, and I wrote a book and I tried to get, get it published. No one would touch it. The, this was before all the sort of thing broke in the High Court. The insurance premium on it was £25,000. Now, if you know anything about the margins on niche publications, it wasn't going to cover the costs or any potential future sales. And then after the Radio 4 series went out and the story got a bit of traction and, and the depth and complexity of finally was, was brought to a national audience, um, I had this lovely agent call me up. He said, oh, Lovely story, darling. Lovely, lovely story. I mean, it's marvelous, gripping, <laughs> gripping stuff. I'd love to be your agent. And I'll tell you what, we'll get a bidding war on this. We really will. I mean, it'll be amazing. And he couldn't get a sniff of interest from a single publisher. And it was only last year when uh, a, a Guardian journalist called Louise Tickle, who does incredible work in the family courts trying to expose what's going on there. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman, really toiling away in the shadows to, to, to get exposure for what happens in those courts. She organises a series of seminars with her mate David from Bath Publishing uh, about access to justice and reporting justice in the courts. And she invited me along because of the stuff I'd done on the post office. And David from Bath Publishing just hosted the Zoom webinar. And afterwards... And he seemed like a nice guy. And uh, I, you know, when I wrote to thank him for inviting me along, I said, oh, I see you're a publisher. Would you publish my book? And, and the next email I got back was, oh, yeah, I've been reading about this in private eye for years. Of course I will. And, and that was it. And that's how I got a book deal. And, and it, if it wasn't for his awareness of the story through the, the private eye stuff, then I'd still be trying to get this away. Lack of challenge from below. As a journalist, if someone comes to you with a story about a workplace problem that they're noticing, the after checking it out, the next thing you will do is go to the friendly local union rep that you've built up a rapport with and go, um, Dave, they're often called Dave. Dave, what, or Sue. It's Dave or Sue. It's good, good union rep names. Um, Dave, what, what's going on here? And they'll tell you whether or not it is an issue and give you some context and whether or not you, what questions you need to be asking as, as well because they'll always have an axe to grind on the issue as well. And what happened when journalists went to the NFSP was that the NFSP would parrot the party line that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the uh, Horizon system. And then the post office would use the NFSP's position as a third party endorsement of the fact that there was nothing wrong with the Horizon system. And the reason for this is because as much as the post office had bet the farm on Horizon, so had the NFSP. Because all its members were sub-postmasters who had paid money to own their own businesses. Now, if word started getting round that their IT system at the heart of their business might not be paying out your benefits correctly, or when you paid in some money to your electricity bill, that might go missing, then people would start to ask questions. On top of that, having lost large amounts of footfall as benefits were paid directly into people's bank accounts, the post office went on this um, desperate attempt to encourage more clients to come in at the back end. They'd 
cut deals with the Bank of Ireland. Uh, you could take banking deposits. They were doing things with NSNI. They were doing things with the BBC through the license fee, the DVLA, insurance companies. You could buy holidays through the post office. They set up their own credit card. They did foreign exchange. Um, they did uh, online banking. They, they, they had all these back-end clients who were interfacing their IT systems with the Horizon system. Now, if there were question marks about the Horizon system there, they wouldn't have drawn this business to them, which would have directly affected the individual self-employed small business people who are sub-postmasters. So the NFSP took a completely inexplicable policy decision that it was better to throw individual sub-postmasters under the bus in order to protect the integrity of the brand as a whole. And this is a membership organisation, which was a union. It got delisted for being a shit union. But... It was a union, and the job, the, you know, your one job as a union is to protect your members' interests. And in 15 years, or I don't know, actually 19 years, the, post, uh, the, the NFSP did not say a single public statement querying the efficacy of the Horizon system. And in 2015, the General Secretary of the NFSP in Parliament went out of his way to say that the post office had played a blinder on Horizon, there was nothing wrong with the system, and those who were agitating about it, the disaffected sub-postmasters, he insinuated that they were creating a cottage industry, they were throwing up a smokescreen, they were trying to get their convictions quashed through uh, uh, what he called a cottage industry of damaging the brand and casting doubt on it because secretly they were all guilty thieves on the take. And that attitude permeated the entirety of the NFSP so that when sub-postmasters, who were told they were the only ones having problems with this Horizon system, went to their local NFSP rep and went, what's going on, I can't get anything to happen, they were left and cut loose uh, uh, to, to, to drown in the, the criminal justice system. And I have had this argument with David at Bath Publishing. He still thinks the post office are the biggest baddies in all of this. But you can understand corporate arseholes. You can understand why corporations want to protect their business interests and their um, business processes, no matter how awful they might be, because they're an existential threat if you start to challenge them. But the NFSP's one job was to look after its membership. And it failed abjectly in that. And I think in many ways that's, that's more culpability because it allowed this awful prosecution spree to continue unchecked for 14 years. That's why we couldn't get a toehold in it as journalists into the story because there was complete omerta at the union, government and post office level about anything and Fujitsu about anything being wrong with this system. We just couldn't get into it. And it was only when it all came out in High Court in 2019 that it finally broke. So that, that was the story about the NFSP, and I'm still outraged by it. And, and one of the biggest frustrations is that when you're trying to tell it in a four-minute one-show piece, they go, well, we can't do anything about the NFSP. It's hard enough explaining what a sub-postmaster is. <laughs> so there's a special chapter reserved in hell for the NFSP, which is right in the middle of this book, and I urge you to read it. This has been the Tap Into Podcast. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you.